I'm very happy to be here again, and I want to tell you about a peculiar thing that Gus said to me. I should not speak for such a short period of time again as I did last time. You know, yesterday I boiled it down to half an hour, and he says, no, I've got to keep on for longer. Now, that's very strange. Usually the complaint is whoever is the minister is talking way too long. But this is a lecture. It is not a really a sermon, whatever you want to call it. But Stephen Bohr last night sort of uh, preempted a little of what I was going to say. And yet he and I prepared separately from each other, not knowing what the other person would speak about. So who organized that? Three angels flying in the midst of heaven. There's something peculiar happening in some places. There are misguided people, even misguided pastors and professors who say, don't preach about the three angels' messages. There are so-called progressive Seventh-day Adventists, liberals, who don't believe all this stuff anymore. This morning, I spoke to Stephen Emsey, who unfortunately can't come. He was going to come. He helped to research the material that went into my book, The, uh, the uh, Truth About 666 and the Story of the Great Apostasy. And when he heard that, he said, remember the word progressive is a favorite word of the spiritualists. Those so-called progressive Adventists who don't want to accept that we are the remnant church or that the three angels' messages are what we think they are, who reject the idea of the mark of the beast being Sunday keeper, keepers, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, progressive Adventists, regressive Adventists, I would say. A danger. Three angels flying in the midst of heaven. Let's see about them. Seventh-day Adventists have a fourfold relationship to the three angels' messages. Did you know that? First, we proclaim and explain them. Second, we came into existence as a result of the prophecy of the three angels. To begin with, there were the Millerites before us, and they preached, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. They thought Jesus would come in 1844. Well, he didn't. But Miller was right about the 2,300 
days representing years. He was, however, wrong about the nature of the event, about the judgment. You know, uh, those people thought that this world was the sanctuary of God and that this world would be cleansed. Well, it so happens there is a sanctuary and there is a judgment, but it's not on this earth. The Millerites were absolutely crushed when Jesus didn't come on October 22nd, 1844. So most of them gave up in one way or the other, but a small group, a remnant, a remainder, persevered. And they became the Seventh-day Adventists. And they found out, but yes, the judgment was real. It is really a judgment. And then they also discovered the Sabbath, but the judgment, the investigative judgment, would take place before the Lord's return. And so we can say that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a result of this message, specifically of the sanctuary message, including the discovery of the Sabbath. Third, the good book specifically identifies us by saying, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And in a parallel passage back at the end of Revelation 12, it says that the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And another scripture says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this would be a group of people who have the gift of prophecy, but they would be keeping the commandments of God, all the commandments of God, including the Sabbath commandment, and have the faith of Jesus. There is no other church in the world that can claim all of that. So there are three links that we have for this message. But fourthly, the passage that comes at the end of Revelation 12, which speaks of the woman fleeing from Satan, the great dragon, would be nourished for 1260 day years. And so this would be there at the end of the 1260 years, stretching from 538 to 1798. And this ties it up with historicism. We are a product of historicism. So we are tied in many ways, and I've mentioned four. Perhaps some clever person will discover some other links. But in four ways, 
we are linked to the three angels' messages. But now let's look at them one by one. The first angel's message, as we observe it, says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a great voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And you find all of this, of course, there in Revelation 14. But now, first, what is the everlasting gospel? It is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who died for us, was resurrected for us, who intercedes for us so that we will be saved. The good news of John 3.16, you know, whosoever believes on him will have eternal life. That is the good news. Now the Millerites, to some extent, proclaim that. Did you know that these presentations by William Miller and others were great occasions of revival. There were revival meetings. To prepare for the coming of Christ, they had to get ready. So this isn't some dry bone stuff. There's a revival element in it. The everlasting gospel. And this ties up with the Great Commission. You remember what Jesus said just before he went up to heaven, that the disciples had to preach the gospel throughout the whole world. But he also said, baptize them and teach them everything that I have commanded you, everything. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper, so were the apostles. The Millerites were not Sabbath keepers. They were basically Sunday keepers. So although they proclaimed the everlasting gospel, it was an incomplete version of it. Therefore, preaching the first angel's message for Seventh-day Adventists means something more complete than what the Millerites were saying. We must look at these messages not only from the point of view of what was going on then in the 19th century, but what is going on now in the 21st century. So this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come, then with the end will come, the Lord said. Now, so all things have to be observed, but that would also be keeping of the commandments of God, all the commandments of God. 
Now let's see whether the seventh day features at all in the book of Revelation. Well, it must because everybody had to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now those words remind us of words in Genesis of what the Lord had made but specifically also in the fourth commandment. God had made everything, heaven and earth and sea and everything. So there is part of it. These words call attention to the creator God who made the earth in six days and worked and rested on the seventh day and made it holy. Made it holy right there in the beginning. And therefore, also in the uh, Ten Commandments. And furthermore, we are told specifically through an identification about the commandment keepers. Now the hour of his judgment, the hour of his judgment had come. But there's another place in Revelation where it speaks of this. We find this in Revelation 11, where it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before the throne of God uh, on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. And what did they say? They thanked God. Uh, but then they say, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. People have been messing around with the earth from the beginning. And God does not like that. But then... The temple of God was opened in heaven. Now, I want to call your attention to this specifically in Revelation 11, there near the end. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his testament, of his covenant, it says here, was seen in his temple. And the word covenant and the word testament in the New Testament are the same word, the Greek word. And there were lightnings, noises, thunders, and earthquake, and great hail. That's the very end of it. You know, when the Lord actually comes. So the seventh angel trumpets and warns, and all these things are involved. But now look at this. Just before he comes, and what is done just before he comes, 
the judgment, that the dead should be judged and that he would give his reward. But look at this. The temple was opened and they saw in the temple what? The ark of his covenant. That is the name for the, that beautiful box that was made by Moses. What was inside? Ten Commandments. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there are two words for temple. One is hieron, which means, you know, a holy place. The other one is naos. Naos is the innermost shrine. It is the holy, the most holy place. And that is the word that is used here in Revelation. In other words, the most holy place in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant could be seen and in it is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, including the Fourth or Sabbath Commandment, which is the basis of that judgment. Now the Millerites did not know all of this. And they didn't proclaim all of this. But that is our job. Now, those who don't like uh, this explanation or doctrine declare that God knows everything. God does not need an investigative judgment. Of course God doesn't need it. But the angels in heaven and the inhabitants of other worlds need it. There is a saying, for justice to be done, justice must be seen to be done. There has to be an investigation. An investigation of who or what. An investigation of the dealings of God as well as of everybody else. God has nothing to hide. He reveals everything. You can look into what I have done, but also look into what Lucifer has done and into what people have done. So there has to be an investigative judgment. And then, of course, you have verdicts. And this judgment takes place in uh, stages. First stage is the investigative judgment at which time it will be finalized who is going to be saved. Amen. And some, by implication, who are not going to be saved, but we won't go into their affairs now. In the thousand years, we will investigate further. Uh, this is a deep thing. I could spend a whole lecture on the first angel's message. Now let's look at the second angel's message. It says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. 
because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of the fornication. That's Revelation 14, verse 8. Now, at that time, the Millerites believed correctly that Babylon was the Roman church, specifically as led by the papacy. But uh, then, 1843, something strange began to happen. You see, the Millerites had often been invited by the uh, various churches, I should say, Miller and his associates, come and preach there. But then these churches began to turn against the Millerites and they expelled them just for believing what William Miller had told. Kicked them out of their congregations. But then a preacher by the name of Charles Fitch, a Millerite, had another look at the scriptures. And he said, well, Babylon is not only the Catholic Church, it's also those people who do the same things, Amen. the fallen Protestants. Uh, but he went further, you know. Uh, the same man uh, linked it up. He linked it up with uh, Revelation 18. You remember there's an angel that comes down from heaven and fills the earth with his glory. And then there's a voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people, that you uh, be not partakers of her sins and receive her plagues. So, uh, Fitch, he said this. Fitch died in 1844, just before the Great Disappointment. And Ellen White wrote that the Lord allowed him to die to save him. The Great Disappointment would have been too much for him. But Charles Fitch was the man who studied this thing. And that message, come out of her, my people, was also preached almost 500 years ago by Martin Luther when he broke with Rome. So there are many dimensions in this thing. Remember, Martin Luther could also read the Bible. Everybody back then could read the Bible, going right back to the time of the apostles and those who wrote it. So we still teach what the Millerites believed, only we have greatly expanded it because the Millerites were Sunday keepers and we are Sabbath keepers. The Millerites did not have all the light that we possess. But here's a warning. Let us be patient with people. Let us not just say, well, you're a Roman Catholic or you are a Presbyterian. Uh, you have the mark of the beast because you keep Sunday. No, 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 that's, uh, it's not like that. We will come to the third angel's message in a moment. Just remember there are many of God's people still out there in Babylon. They are conscientious. They don't know all these things. 
They serve the Lord according to the light that they have. They are there. They're children of God in Babylon. They're children of Satan in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they will leave when the time comes, those progressive, regressive people, if they don't change their ways, they are in danger. Nowadays, Seventh-day Adventists are not just a, a group of Millerites. We are a denomination on our own. We have almost 20 million people. There are probably more Seventh-day Adventists than Southern Baptists in the world. Did you know that? Seventh, uh, the uh, Southern Baptists, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. But their membership is declining. They also started about the same time as the Seventh-day Adventists. And they also believe that they had a worldwide mission, which they are not fulfilling. They have to, uh, they're having trouble right here in this country. But remember, many of God's people are still out there. And as things develop, we will have not only ordinary church members from the other denominations, we will have ministers who will come out and join their voices to what we're doing. Back in South Africa, where we come from, there is a man by the name of Ernie Rex. His mother was English-speaking. No, his mother was uh, Afrikaans-speaking. His father was English-speaking. So he can speak both those languages well. I heard his... Uh, testimony of how he became a Seventh-day Adventist over the internet in the Afrikaans language, but he will be working on translating these things. He was a Dutch reform minister for many years, and it deeply irritated him to hear these sects, these Seventh-day Adventists, always carrying on about Saturday, Sabbath, and what have you. But his wife had somehow heard things and he tells that wonderful story. But he said, as he worked as a Calvinist minister, so far as he could tell, he had the truth. And as far as it went, it was the truth, although there were some things that were not true. But he found out there was also such a thing as the greater truth, the greater light. And he has been a Seventh-day Adventist minister now for at least 10 years. The Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa is collapsing. It may disappear. It was in cahoots with the government, the apartheid government. It always has been in, in cahoots with all governments. It was like a state church, but many of its most prominent members did not believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection from the dead. So now they're giving up. And I know of at least one beautiful Dutch church that sold out cheaply to the Seventh-day Adventists. And members of that church, they still attend, only they come on Sabbath now instead of Sunday. And even the man who rings the bell, it's his church, so he's changed, changed over and become an Adventist. 
the older Protestant denominations and even some of the younger ones in the United States are declining in their membership. The Presbyterian Church, badly so. Even others are declining. And as they decline and as they break up, there will be those who hear the voice, come out of her, my people. And so, we will see wonderful things if we are faithful. But this coming out of Babylon had more than one dimension. It was in the past, in the time of the Millerites. It is now. But it has a future dimension as well. Re uh, Revelation 18. The fourth angel's message, which will be joined to the third, but also to the second, where a mighty angel comes down from heaven. It does not fly through the sky like the three angels. It comes down from heaven, a mighty figure, and lights the earth with his glory. Who is that? That too is God's remnant. But now commissioned by God himself. And another voice comes from heaven, but that is not the voice of the, third, the fourth angel. Come out of her, my people. Whose voice is that, do you think? It's the voice of our Lord himself. But Satan fears all of this. He doesn't like these messages. So he's working very hard at undermining these messages. But now let's move on and we look a little further. We look at the third angel's message. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which he poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And it's easy to misinterpret some of those things. The smoke of their torment not only will they be tormented and destroyed, but they will have a bad reputation throughout eternity. The smoke of their torment goes up. But we need to proclaim this message aright. And we need to understand there's a background to this. The third angel's message is not yet being proclaimed in his strength. Did you know that? 
and it cannot be. It is only when they start making Sunday laws and they threaten the children of God and Sabbath keepers are threatened with legal action and actual legal action comes and they threaten and then God threatens back and he makes his representatives say if you do that thing with a Sunday law and you pass legislation to oppress the children of God, then God himself will you have you burn most horribly in hell. That is what it says. Now, we are not to judge individuals. They may not know better, but they should know and we must tell them these things. So, we must not hold back either. Let's have balance. But people must be told. And when there is the slightest move towards Sunday's legislation in this country, we must speak up. The spirit of prophecy tells us we are not to allow people simply to take our rights from us. Oh, they will go ahead and do those things anyway, but they too have the right to know why they mustn't. So then, who is the third angel? The good book tells us. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Who? We are the third angel. And when the Bible says, keep the commandments of God, it means all the commandments. It doesn't mean nine commandments, does it? Or a, a ten commandments which contains a, a place that has put Sunday in instead of Sabbath. The Bible means exactly what it says. We are the third angel. We have these uh, four different links with the three angels' messages. We have no right to exist. We have no present or future for that matter if we do not represent the three angels' messages, if we don't preach the three angels' messages. Now, if we are progressive, no, liberal, progressive, but I say uh, regressive, Seventh-day Adventists. Let us note something, and I am not, sp not speaking to you in front of me. I am speaking to others who may see this representation. There is a very nice pope around. And he's saying in a sweet, sweet voice, with his arms held wide, come back to Papa, and you will have Protestants crowding back, Protestants with their ecumenical tendencies. Come back to Papa, and those 
progressive, regressive Seventh-day Adventists who do not believe that we are the remnant, who reject the idea that there will be Sunday's legislation. Okay, come back to Papa. And that perhaps is where some of them belong. But let us pray for them so that they can change their minds and realize there is no future for them as Seventh-day Adventists if they do, don't fulfill the Great Commission, preach this, uh, the three angels' messages and that message of the fourth angel. Do the job that God has given you to do. Don't try and invent or reinvent the message. It is not for us to decide what we are to do. Do I like proclaiming the three angels' messages? No. I don't like it. It is not popular. It's not hard to win friends and influence people. You know, like Dale Carnegie's book. No, it's not popular. It's not meant to be popular. It's meant to arrest the attention of the world. It is the last messages. It is God warning. I want the eternal gospel undiluted, undefiled to be proclaimed to the whole world. I want them to know there's a judgment taking place now already. And most probably he's already busy with the living. My brother and sister, be aware of that. We still have mercy until the door of probation has closed. But there are all these events upon us. And there is a Pope going to visit in September, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast will be visiting the two-horned beast. And he probably will have very interesting things to say to the houses of Congress. And while we are busy with all kinds of other things, uh, a bit of evolution, maybe at one of our universities, some spiritual formation at some other institutions, squabbling about women's ordination and some other things while we are busy with this. Wham! We could be hit from the side by something totally different. This is an old military device. Uh, keep them busy. Uh, Sideline certain things. Uh, Detract their attention from where the attention should be, and then you hit them and you hit them hard. May the good Lord preserve our church, may he preserve us, but above all, give us courage. Because beyond all the things that we see, there is waiting a revival of primitive godliness such as the world has not seen since apostolic times. Amen. Shall we pray? Our dear Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being bearers of this message, of being those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, those, too, who have the spirit of prophecy, 
those who understand the proclamation of prophecy and how to interpret it. Lord, help us on whom the ends of the earth have come so that we will be brave and stand like courageous men and women and do the work that you have given us to do. Amen. Uh, I've, I've been reading in volume four of Ellen White's 1888 messages, and I noticed there in dealing with the 1888 messages, she goes over and over through that whole volume uh, a subject of using strange fire. Now, uh, we're familiar with that back from the time of Israel when Nadab and Abihu brought this into the sanctuary. But she applies this to some of the things that were happening there at Battle Creek, not just to one item, but to many different items. Have you run into anything in the Bible prophecies that dis uh, discusses this possible application of us using strange fire and a warning against this in the last days of presenting Bible prophecy? Well, you know, I have not read what she said there specifically, but there is something that immediately comes to my mind. And that is that some of our scholars who lust after doctoral degrees go and study at those other universities of Sunday keepers, skeptics, and what have you, who do not like our message or our interpretation. And then they come with prophetic interpretations that are different from what we have, and they intermingle this. When they come and they say, well now, that 666 mm, is uh, symbolic of uh, our human imperfections. Oh, it's not Vicarious Philly Day, as Uriah Smith wrote in Daniel and the Revelation. That is dangerous stuff. They are perverting the message. And uh, I've written about that. I've written about that in my books. But I don't know whether that answer satisfies you fully. Or perhaps in part. Anything else, Herb, on that? What, what amazed me is she applied that to different situations, like in the Battle Creek College, like to some of the uh, conference leaders, so many different situations. And so this is what I'm looking for is, are there different kinds of situations beside what you mentioned already? I agree there. Uh, well, I guess it is not confined to prophecy. I remember Sister White wrote against kingly power. Kingly power is back. We are being 
sort of directed and ruled from the top down instead of from the congregation up, in, in spite of the church manual. You know, the church manual says that the church business meeting is the highest authority uh, in the local church. But where I come from, I know of uh, one church which in the appointment of a minister, the senior minister, well, they had uh, candidates come and preach to us, but the decision was made by the church board for choice, not by the congregation as a whole. And so we've got this kind of stuff. I don't like it. And uh, I think Sister White would have spoken out against it in our time, as she did previously, you know. Some say, well, there is no kingly power anymore. We are not a hierarchy. And you know, it doesn't work like that. We are a hierarchy in practice, not in theory. But I don't know. Is there anything else? Just recent, <coughs> recently, within the last month, a small congregation in the state of Utah was uh, looking for a pastor. Their pastor had moved on. <clears throat> and the local conference brought them a, a young man from who had just graduated from the seminary. And the church board or business meeting letter sat down and they interviewed this young man and they found out that he held a number of <clears throat> very pro progressive or regressive ideas, uh, which can be labeled as the new theology and such, and they told the conference that they would not accept him as their pastor. And the conference uh, hierarchy came to the church and said, you will accept him as a pastor or you will be without a pastor, period. Wow. And they would have been better off without a pastor in such circumstances. Wouldn't they? Uh, I have a question. I had the opportunity to wander around Oxford and dig into some information about the Oxford movement. Okay. And. Um, you had, no, no, I like, you had the mic. Yes, sir. Would you like it now? Yeah. Oh. No, you can I'll wait. Okay. Um, what happened with John Henry Newman and his compadres? I mean, they just didn't convert like that. What really happened? I mean, the reason I'm asking that is because we're seeing that happen again in the church, the same type of... Well, Newman was a, a kind of romantic in the sense of uh, studying uh, literature and things. And he was fascinated by the very idea of an unbroken sequence of popes coming right from Jesus Christ down to the present day and with beautiful music and ceremonial and all that. But there was one thing that stood in the way and that, there, that was this historicism, this interpretation of prophecy that the papacy was actually the Antichrist. And so 
he feared, and so did Manning, who was also there. But then, as I think I explained before, somebody in England, an Anglican, had been studying the issue, and he said, well, uh, it's, it wasn't like that, and there are not 1260 years, it's just 1260 literal days. Ah, this is something coming up. He was infected by the ideas of Francisco Ribera, the Jesuit, Spanish Jesuit of the Counter-Reformation. And this uh, was echoed by somebody called uh, Berg or de Berg over in Ireland. And, uh, and Todd, that was another man. Now these were Protestants but they were also Irish nationalists. And they liked the idea that the Roman Catholic Church was not anti-Christian, but it was a valid Christian church. And this was also echoed by people like Newman and whatnot. They said, well, that is very valuable. Well, Newman said that. Ideas of Todd and so forth, very valuable. So the Pope is not the Antichrist. Well, now... And if it's not an, the Antichrist, how wonderful that all the way down from Jesus Christ to the present, there's a representative of Jesus Christ, and what uh, wonderful church, music, uh, liturgy, uh, decorations. And Ellen White warned, we mustn't think that Catholic services are uninteresting. Not at all. So he became a Catholic. And later was a cardinal of the Catholic Church. So was Manning. And Manning then, well, he became the uh, archbishop of the Catholic Church in Britain. But this ecumenical thing went on. Not all of these Anglicans became uh, Catholics. But it killed off what's known as the lower church the more Protestant variety. It created Anglo-Catholicism, which is uh, predominant to this day in the Anglican Church. And this gave impetus, this Oxford movement, to the ecumenical thing, which is lasting and going on in the world. And it's still affecting and infecting the minds of religionists. Something like that. in response to kingly power and to the example of the Utah congregation where the conference forced a pastor on the local congregation. Here in Ohio, without mentioning names, the conference assigned a pastor to a local congregation. The congregation knew the pastor. They disagreed with his theological position. And it was not only the board, but they had a business meeting. The church was united. And they said, we don't accept it, period. If we have to go without a pastor, we have local elders. We will fill the pulpit. We will not take that pastor and the conference had no choice. 
But everything depends on the health of the local congregation, the lo local elders and presbyters. They have to be united. If they are not united theologically, the conference will exercise kingly power. But here is a classical illustration where the local conference had to back off. That's all. I could tell another story. There is a conference, which I will not mention, with a church in which there was an elderly lady who was very clever in explaining the Bible. And people would turn to her. She'd explain the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. She was extremely knowledgeable, a brilliant woman, an old woman. But there was also a minister, and the minister's wife hated this, especially when people told them about this. And the minister himself did not like it. And so the minister's wife said, my husband is cleverer than she is. But the people didn't pay much attention, so eventually the minister got the police to prevent that lady from attending church. It warned her, warned her, don't come here anymore. Well, he got the police to prevent her for, from going to that church. So she went and worshipped in another place, and lots of the people were drawn out after her. And the conference upheld the minister and said, it is the right of the minister to decide what is done in his church. Well, the result of the thing is that both the congregations died out, the original one and the other one, and that lady is very elderly. She's now in a retirement home. I think now, at last, the conference may do something about it. There are things like that around. We do not want kingly power. We do want good organization, but we don't like kingly power. I think we need to have our denomination reorganized against. The last reorganization was in 1901. I think we need it again, but it's out of my hands or out of yours, maybe. <clears throat> Thank you, Doctor. But we're on to a different, these are different topics. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.